an Ironic Media production. Visit us at I-R-O-N-I-C-K media.com. This is the disease that doesn't have a predictability, I found out. Just like when you're pregnant, you say, okay, this is the first month, second month, third month, we're going to have the symptoms. It isn't that way. I've learned that really early and very frustrating for me because I like things to be a certain way and, and methodically predictable. But that, that, wasn't, that wasn't it. So the support groups have certainly helped to give me a, a perspective that will enable me to be able to make plans and look ahead, which is really helpful. Dementia Discussions. Here to help and empower our heroic caregivers with knowledge and experience. Dementia Discussions with the caregivers themselves and memory loss professionals. Here to help with 30 years as a geriatric social worker is your Dementia Discussions host, Barbara Hammett. Hello and welcome to Dementia Discussions. I'm Barbara Hammett. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Ramona Garza. I know Ramona through my support group at UCLA. She often comes with her daughter and thankfully her daughter has agreed to come on Dementia Discussions as well. So we'll hear from America in a couple of weeks. But Ramona, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. Happy to have you. So you're here to talk about your husband. I've never met your husband. What's his name? His name is George. George. Mm -hmm. So tell us about George. Well, let's see. We met about 30 years ago, and he was working at that time and has been until he retired in the aerospace industry. And so he was an aerospace engineer, and he worked for the government and for various Northrop, PRW, whatever evolutions that occurred within the industry. So he was quite engaged with that, and then he also worked as a consultant after he retired. And that's about it. I mean, he was, he likes... He plays, or he used to play the saxophone and he used to also dance international folk dancing and uh, folklorico. So he was very active and involved in the arts, and which is something that I really liked about him. And so he still appreciates that, that part mm. of the, the mm. world. That's so great. So it sounds like he was a very smart man and then had this yeah. musical <laughs> dance interest on the side. Wow, what a great guy. Yeah, he had the left and the right brain kind of balanced as far as I'm concerned. But uh, yeah, which is, guys, that's what makes it difficult to reconcile why now it's not balanced. But that's, that's Mm. I suppose, the the crux of our conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when did you start noticing changes with him? It wasn't me. It was actually my daughter who noticed it more so than I did. You're in a marriage, you kind of take things for granted. You kind of get used to the idiosyncrasies that your partner has, and you just don't pay attention. And there were there were a lot of things that were happening, at least professionally in my life. And so I really didn't pay attention, although now looking back and looking at some of the stuff that I've been looking at, looking at paperwork and whatnot, I, I do realize that this was probably way before it got detected officially by the medical doctors. My daughter noticed it more because she would come to, from uh, school, from college, and she would actually notice changes or things that he had forgotten. And I just got his old age. I kind of put it off as that. But he was diagnosed officially in 2016. That's when he was diagnosed. 
Oh God, that's a good question. <laughs> I have to compute that. <laughs> well, that was five years ago. How old is he now? Yeah, he's 81. I hope I made the math right. But I know that there were obviously signs before that. Like I said, I didn't pay attention. And that's when you have the, the rude awakening. But there was obviously there were signs before that, which led me to take him to the doctor and eventually have the MRI that indicated that he had Alzheimer's and he was officially diagnosed. And what were the signs? Was he still working as a consultant? He was working as a consultant, but he, because things stopped because the aerospace industry had its own crisis. And so there were no longer contracts. And I guess you asked me what were the signs and Mm -hmm. it was eventually the things that were very important to him in terms of finances, because he used to keep that very much. That was his forte. I think engineers are wired that way. They they like to invest. They like to look at figures. They like to look at markets. And uh, we started to see a dissociation to that. Uh, you're no longer interested in that. The statements would sort of pile up. And more so the bills. The bills started to bounce. Like there was past due bills, which he would never have allowed because he hates to pay anything that has interest in it. And so there was things. And so I started to notice that these envelopes are sort of piling up and they weren't getting addressed and things and more notes little notes and uh more he was making little notes you mean like he was writing little notes to himself yeah yeah Mm -hmm. he was writing notes and he was keeping track of notes and just wads of little papers with with little notes things and and then I started to notice conversations were also being written in his phone like a little memo I spoke to my daughter blah 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 so there were Signs like that, that sort of began to like, oh my God, something's different here. It's not typical of, of the uh, behavior. And then hoarding. I mean, all of a sudden it was keeping little papers in his pockets or stashing away the wrapping of the tissue paper in a, in, in a place that you wouldn't expect it to be. I mean, you'd kind of throw that out. So there were things that were not necessarily happening and then I think the biggest revelation was he was a very technical like he liked technology and connected cables and you know stuff that I hate doing and all of a sudden I ended up having to take over the wireless you know printer how do you connect that or how do you connect how do you connect the cables behind the tv when you buy a new one and he used to love that so it became clear that things that were very much into his you know, DNA, so to speak, were no longer relevant. He wasn't interested and he was just doing things that were out of the out of normal things mm-hmm. that we we would do together or separately. So that's when I started to notice that things were 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 shifting. And it, that's when we started. So it was a gradual I think it was already there because I see a lot of things that were in my file cabinets or his file cabinets and I'm cleaning out and I'm like, oh my God. The notes were there. Little notes were already there. Little signs were already there. You just hadn't noticed. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's the, the, the biggest, like, and I had a conversation with someone and I said, you know, my biggest regret is not noticing earlier. But then I guess the question is, if you noticed earlier, what would, what would you have done differently that you're already doing right now? It was kind of what, what would have, would, would things have changed? And probably not. Mm-mm. Yeah, probably so, not. I guess I'm trying to feel less guilty, perhaps, about mm-hmm. not having been on top of it. And and as a professional woman, you want to be on top of, you know, everything and anything. And 
But when you're in a marriage, it's a partnership and you give that, you share things and you kind of don't have to be on top of each other to figure out, what well, did you do this? Did you do that? And so I sort of look back and say, well, our marriage was great because we had this trust and that's what you have in a partnership, trust. And it's not a violation of trust in as much as a deficiency in ability. And so that that's, that's what kind of makes me feel that I have reconciled the guilt mm-hmm. so that it's no longer uh, affecting me the same way I think before when you felt. And then as I was going to say, as a Catholic, you carry a lot of guilt. So you try to reconcile that. So I, I think I'm at a different point than when I was before. And I think, Barbara, you've noticed that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, in our meetings. absolutely. And I think you're right. Even if you had noticed it before, nothing would be different now, right? I mean, no. maybe he would have gotten on medication a little sooner, but that really wouldn't, nothing really would have changed. Because no. no. I still would have had to take over the responsibilities mm-hmm. that were there before. So it doesn't change that. It just meant that a couple of things got retired. I mean, things had to happen and they would have happened anyhow. It's just, yeah, everything's timing and uh, awareness. And, um, yeah, talk about that a little bit, retiring, because you worked at UCLA. You had a pretty big job at UCLA. Yes, I retired from UCLA after 30 years. And quite frankly, my benchmark was sort of to retire around that time. I probably would have gone on for another two years or so. I would have liked that. But I think there were a lot of factors, including obviously my husband's situation, that sort of culminated into making a decision that was probably the best for me and my health. I think part of it is the stress of trying to manage a professional portfolio and trying to be you know, good at it and traveling. And I used to travel quite a bit to Sacramento, but uh, because of the situation, it wouldn't allow me to have that flexibility anymore. It's sort of like having, having a child. When you have a child and you're worried about are they going to be taken care of, are they going to do this, whatever, and, and you travel, but you still have that, that sense of responsibility. And so I felt that that's what was happening when I would leave my husband and and I would travel. So I decided, and it was a difficult decision, but with all the other things that I ended up having to handle as part of the portfolio that was previously handled, I think it was the best uh, decision. But looking then, I was a little resentful about it because I was like, I'm making this decision based on something that I had not planned for, but here I am. And there were other factors in relevant to the institution that sort of prompted me to just go ahead and and do what I needed to do to regain my health and uh, time. I really needed time to process the level of responsibilities that was actually inheriting because I also take care of my dad. And Mm -hmm. so that also was another factor that sort of contributed. But retirement was hard. It was difficult because I still have a lot of energy left in me. But I think the key is to keep mentally challenged for yourself, for myself. Mm -hmm. And certainly handling finances has kept me financially challenged, you know, just challenging in terms of making sure that uh, you develop other interest areas that you hadn't really thought you were going to have to do. But here we are. Here you are. Yeah, I think other people can relate to the resentfulness that you've had, the resentment that you had about retiring when you really hadn't planned that. What was happening with George that you felt like you needed to be home with him? I think I realized the severity of what Alzheimer's is. And I think I realized too that this wasn't the journey that I was going to be able to do while trying to be a professional 
and, and do my best as a professional. I just felt then based on participations within support groups and all, that I was just getting a, a glimpse through his beginning stages of what it was going to be like towards the future. And I felt like I needed to get our things in order, our living trust or things, beneficiaries, things that needed to be done. And since it was a different work for me, arena, a different level of expertise, that I couldn't do this haphazardly, but that I needed to take the time to, to really become familiar with what I needed to carry out as, as a new responsibility. So I think that combination sort of prompted me to decide that. And again, aside from other factors that were going on, this particular one is, is one that I had to also consider within that, that context. Yeah, that's a really good point about the powers of attorney. Yeah, the, the legal documents. That's a great point that you have to do them when a person is still able to. And as they progress, they lose the ability. Yeah, it's hard. Well, then the other is that we we have one daughter, as you mentioned, and George was actually the one responsible for my for medical decisions if something happened to me. And so we had to make changes so that it's my daughter and him based on that at that point in time and, and what happened with, with our attorney so that she would have that responsibility, not obviously my husband who wouldn't be able to do it not consciously necessarily. Right, exactly. And I think most couples face that point where of course you're you're each other's powers of attorney and when you realize right. he's really not going to be able to be there for you, that has to change. Yeah. And again, those. those are areas that nobody really likes to confront or we do it later or we do it but I think that that's that's something that I really became more aware and and in tune with that needed to be done because I didn't want to inherit, if you want, the legal portfolio of things that would be worse if I hadn't planned ahead. And that's, I think, what I what I needed to do, which allowed me with retirement to sort of spend that time and focus on, on things that were obviously important to maintain the household. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good for you. So a hard decision, but you did it. And so here you are on the other side of retirement. And like you said, it's important to fill your day with things that are stimulating to you, which you've done, right? I mean, I have to say first, I mean, the program through UCLA, the dementia program does offer some resources and the opportunity to be able to be a part of the support group, which is how I met you, helps to be able to, again, get a, get a, a bird's eye view of what your situation is, but also get a spectrum of what everybody else is going through at different stages. This is the disease that doesn't have a predictability, I found out. Just like when you're pregnant, you say, okay, so this is the first month, second month, third month, you're going to have the symptoms. It isn't that way. I've learned that really early and very frustrating for me because I like things to be a certain way and, and methodically predictable. But that, that, wasn't, that wasn't it. So the support groups have certainly helped to give me a, a perspective that, that will enable me to be able to make plans and look ahead, which is which is really helpful. The other is that the Alzheimer's organization has a lot of activities. I have been very, very impressed by the level of programming that they have. And the programming actually does help to keep my husband engaged and involved. I mean, as a spouse and a partner, you get tired of the same story over and over again. But guess what? He's involved and he's talking to people that have the same within the same spectrum and gets an opportunity to repeat things over and over again without getting somebody 
And then there's, you know, art programs and they have storytelling programs. I mean, they, they, they just do array and they've taken advantage of those and some art programs, which are really great. I love the art programs that are offered not only through Alzheimer's, but also the Hammer that allow us to be able to spend time together too, because we like art. So we kind of spend. So it's also not just about putting them aside and saying, oh, yeah, you have your time and I have mine. It's about sharing some of that. And that also helps to, to at least keep some peace, if you want, and some reasonable rapport and engagement with, with your spouse as you see him moving in through his journey. The other is that it will be participate in the timeout program sponsored by UCLA too. And it's a great program. And I think the timeout is for the caregiver. He gets a chance to talk to a UCLA student. He feels he's contributing. And I tell him, he says, oh, I'm an alumni. And he loves talking about his experience at UCLA because he's a graduate from UCLA. Through this experience, what I've learned is the wealth of resources that are available. And people like yourself, very committed to this group, which was really non-existent in my job, in my capacity, whatever, in my professional life. And now all of a sudden I'm infused and I'm engaged with a whole different area because of my husband and, and the resources that and I think there's people out there that are very committed to this that really do make a difference in, in the lives and I don't think people realize how much it means to us as caregivers to have that opportunity to engage in those types of programs and not everybody like I talked to some people about programs and like eh, I don't know about that but I found it's been helpful for me and for my husband mm-hmm. and I think that's that's what I, I needed some break time and I also needed him to be engaged mentally so that it can continue to be at least mentally active in some way. That's so great that you're open to the programs that are in the community because there are great programs, especially for someone like George who can participate. He's at a stage where he still can participate in some of these programs. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully he's still, and you know, it's wonderful to have a program and to engage and all that. The sadness that comes after this, for me at least, is not being able for him to remember what happened. So like he'll have that opportunity, that moment of engagement and joy. And then when I ask him, well, how, and I'll, I'll listen to the conversations and whatnot. And he'll say, I don't know. I really don't know what we talked about. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it was well, an indicator of, this, of obviously the disease, but it's also sad because you know that in his case, he enjoys that moment in time. But the sadness for me is knowing that it's not going to be um, kept or shared in that mental. Which is something you always did, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. We would have conversations. And and so it's, that's, that's the, the sadness, because you want to share that partnership and being a spouse and sharing those things become less and less over time. And that's that's what makes it difficult. And a lonely journey as a, as a partner and as a caretaker. The caregiver role is something that you just can't imagine until it happens. And then that's the other reason why I think prompted me because I realized I was a caregiver now and it's like, oh my God, I gotta I have a level of responsibility here that I need to, to take on. Mm, yeah, we do talk about that often in group, right? The lonely journey, as you say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so like I think the, the my thing is looking for outlets, personal outlets. I've joined a book club. I, I participate in support group discussions. I try to keep a journal. I'm trying to, there's someone who actually I met through a Latino summit about uh, Alzheimer's and he does a creative writing class. And I said, hmm, maybe I should start 
So there's things that also are of interest to me that I still want to explore. I exercise. I do things for myself that I think are also important to to feed and to be intellectually stimulating. And then eat right and eat well so that we don't jeopardize that part of it either and keep healthy. And that's the other thing, too. The reality is making sure that you're healthy so that you can be a better caregiver. And be, and actually, and, and then programming, being away from George, because also you can't be 24-7, even though we try to be, and taking some time for ourselves is really important. So mm-hmm. I think that that yeah, the care yeah. and nurturing. <laughs> exactly, which is so hard for most caregivers to do. Yeah. My daughter and I spent the day together at the California Science Center, and I was a little hesitant with COVID and everything, but they did an excellent job as an institution to you know, ensure there wouldn't be a lot of people. And so I, I felt really safe afterwards. But that day really was an indicator. It was the first time that we kind of did something together after all this time, and because I am vaccinated. And so and I had a great time. I mean, I really, it was like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to be out without having to worry about packing everything if you take your spouse or doing anything like that putting the wheelchair that he walks, but the wheelchair makes it easier sometimes to be able to travel from one place to the other, particularly for appointments, medical appointments. So it was really like, oh, this is what it feels like. And I had forgotten about that because we've all been locked up. I think any more time for that. And I think people noticed that it being, uh, I was so excited about going to see a Lego exhibit. What? (laughs) The Lego. It's a Lego exhibit. It's a (laughs) Lego exhibit. I like Legos and, and actually it was a very, very interesting exhibit. And I had wanted to go, so it was full circle because they closed we were going to go to the exhibit and they actually closed it the day that we were planning to to go because of COVID. So it was kinda they were re engaging members to go back and, and see the exhibit now that it's semi open. So mm-hmm. so I, I spent the day. It was good. It was being by my being by myself and sharing a moment with my daughter, which is, you know, also becoming important. Which is great. And not worrying about George. Was he home with a caregiver or how yeah. did that happen? He we was. had a friend come over. Mm-hmm. That is, he's not very good at, he's always been somewhat of an introvert. So he's not very good at accepting people that, so that, that's going to be, that's going to be a transition point for me, but we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll mm-hmm. figure it out because I have some, some options and things that I need to work out. Mm-hmm. So now it's you, your home. Can he be left home alone or it doesn't sound like he Yeah, can. I know. Well, he can. He can, but not for extended periods. I mean, he can. So I think that the issue for me is gauging those things that will be available once COVID is sort of evolving. He has his vaccination. Engaging those things that will be good to do together, like going out for a walk and doing things and gauging those things that won't be that will be more time consuming, that require more attention by someone. So I've got to figure that out. And so I'm in baby steps, so to speak, to try to, and especially because COVID isn't like allowing us to do too much outside anyhow at the moment with everything that's going on. So I just figure we'll, we'll figure it out as it comes along, so to speak, to figure out what's whatever. And the other thing is he's changing too. It's totally different. Some things are very attractive to him and other things he doesn't want it he, he loves going to the movies I think part of it is air conditioning but we will never be able to talk about the movie afterwards and there's things that are too no- noisy things where there's a lot of people he won't he won't like he'll feel like I want to go home kind of thing so we've seen that he likes to be at home he actually likes to be at home because 
he does have incontinence. So that, so the insecurity of not having a bathroom accessible or something makes him real anxious. So we have to make sure that we're prepared for that as we're traveling anywhere and mitigate if you want any, any type of anxiety that can get in, get in the way of having an enjoyable time. So, and that is unpredictable. <laughs> you know, it's not something that you can predict. Is he having a good day? Well, some days, yes, and some days, no, but nobody knows. So I've, I've alerted friends who say, well, let's do this, let's do that. And I said, you know what, I can tell you I'll be there at seven, but I'll be there at nine because I just don't know. I've got to take care of him and every day will be different. There's no, that's what I've learned. There's no predictability. You have to adapt and you have to go with the flow and you have to be honest with people. I think that that's probably, when I say that honest, I I cannot, for instance, call, you know, anybody between a certain amount within a certain time frame. I have to either call late in the evening or have something in the morning. I mean, I have to be upfront with people so that they understand that I have a responsibility and I have to put those parameters in place to be able to function and also carry out those things or the responsibilities that I have at home. So yeah, it just shifts your whole <laughs> total your total way of being. <laughs> Absolutely. Everything. It shifts everything. It really does. Yeah. Your whole life is shifted, it sounds like. And now as you say, it's unpredictable. Every day is unpredictable. You never know what's coming. As much as people in general try to give you some support or try to, they have no understanding and there's no fault of their own, but you just don't have any understanding of what it is to live with someone who has Alzheimer's. No understanding whatsoever. And and part of it is because it's one of those things, unless you're in it, then you have familiarity with it. And so I think it becomes a very isolated place too, because there's only a certain group of people that you can actually share and be open about what's going on with your spouse, issues that he might have, medications he's taking, behavioral issues. And so people like outside have a certain image of what my husband was like. And so I think that that has changed over time, obviously, but they still have that image intact. And so it makes it when I speak about him, it almost seems like, oh, my God, you're talking about George? He's not that way. Or they don't remember him that way. And so they have a certain image of what he was uh, when he was obviously active and engaging. And so for them, that hasn't changed. So to share about certain things that are happening is very difficult because they can't reconcile that the now with then. So you become isolated because you don't want to share any of that stuff because you also don't want to sound like you're bad-mouthing your husband. (laughs) You're you're being realistic about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And they haven't been there with you along the way to know what's been happening. It's a lonely thing because you then the things that you used to do as a couple or friends or whatever, it just becomes a little tighter and a little different. And, And you develop new friends. I mean, obviously through the support groups and whatnot, you develop new people because they have a connection with you that makes it special because we're sharing a common experience. Mm-hmm. I think you're basically talking about being isolated, except for yeah. people who understand who are going through the same thing. Like you said, people who are familiar with what you're going through. And those tend to be the people who are going through the same thing. I have to say, it's nice to expand your group of friends too, because of the, of that commonality. You have a shared experience and it's great. I, I have enjoyed that meeting new people within this context as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the behaviors that are happening with George? I think the anger 
of not being able to recall, the frustration of seeing things and not remembering how to plug a cable into a TV, okay? I mean, what I feel is more frustration about the things that he used to do, like things are prompts, like you'll see a cable and it's off and, and he'll want to deal with it, but he can't and he gets frustrated about it. I think one that's been prevalent, especially with America, our daughter has been here for uh, the duration of, of the lockdown. He goes back to what his experience was when she was in high school. Now, we all have had kids and we know what that's like in high school. And yet she is obviously now going to law school. So she is not a high schooler. And his perception of her still within that age range is very frustrating to him because he cannot accept her authority, maybe, or her suggestions because she's still the child. So that's been very frustrating to him. And so he gets really angry and frustrated and he doesn't understand. And then this COVID situation has been using a mask. I mean, use a mask. No, I need air. Use a mask. No, I need air. I mean, it's just adjustments. We can adjust, but they're not easy adjustments for, for someone like him. And so those kind of frustrations develop into anger. And then he's always, like I said, been a very introvert, but I think I've heard more within the last five years or within maybe the last three, but more just words that he would never use, foul words, that he, even in Spanish. So it's just a different personality in that, in that respect. And so it makes it really, really hard. That must and have taken that, you by surprise. That. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's not, and, and I think it for my daughter too, because we haven't, obviously I told her not, don't take any, any of that from anybody. And so to hear it from her own dad is a little uh, disconcerting. And you, 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 yeah, you're shocked because you're like, wait a minute, who is this person? And then you have to process backwards and say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But he wasn't that way. And you, you're, you're like, why? What? Why is he doing this? The other way that anger manifests itself, it's sort of like he decided that we had too much debt. He decided that we had too many credit cards. So he started to cut all the credit cards. I found them one day. It's like, really? <laughs> he found them. And then he hid my laptop. Behaviors that, and it was out of, maybe he sees me too much. I don't know, on the laptop, but he decided to hide it because I was working too much or something. So it's not frustration where it's vocal. It's frustration where he does things in reaction to, but they don't make any sense. Yeah, I remember that, that laptop incident. I think <sighs> you, told, you said he threw it away. Yeah, he threw it away. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, that was like a real, that was a shock. (laughs) It was a moment. And that's really when I started to consider the medication. I started to consider medication as uh, for him or for you? (laughs) For him. (laughs) For him. Well, I decided that if I didn't start him on it, that I was going to end up having to take it too. So I decided to. And there's nothing bad about that, but no, I, I really wanted to have some intervention and that's where the dementia program came into place and uh, the doctor that he goes to and so decisions were made. You know, the, the ironic part is that he has always been a vegetarian. He's always been very conscientious about not putting anything medical into his body, anything. And so it's been an interesting and ethical question for me, giving him medication. Medication for his anger? For his anger, yeah, yeah, antidepressant. And what I found out is that that also is very unpredictable. When I say that, not everybody takes the same medication. Not everybody 
that's tailored to the particular behaviors or maybe even the preference of the doctor or the, the track record that perhaps he's had. And, and so that also doesn't, there's no predictability there. You have to be very conservative and we have to kind of monitor the behavior and have to make sure I'm at home to make sure that there isn't a reaction of some sort. And so yeah, it's just a whole different phase. So I have, now I'm becoming a pharmacist in training, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> trying to make the best decisions to ensure that there's a balance. And of course, we're all going to get frustrated about things, but that there's a balance of things. And you don't impede the current abilities that he does have going to the restroom on his own or whatever by giving him drugs that are just going to keep him in bed all day. So it's gauging those things. And so that that is what I do now is try to figure those behaviors and try to mitigate them as best as possible in consultation, obviously, with our nurse practitioner and our doctor mm-hmm. at UCLA. <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah. It sounds so hard. It really does. It's a precious life. It's like having a child. But you're like, wait a minute, this child is like a child learns through processes and they fall and they get up and they say, okay, I'm not supposed to do that or whatever. And this is totally the reverse (laughs) when you're taking care of someone with Alzheimer's. They don't remember, they don't learn it, they don't recall, and you have to just work with what you've got. And that that is the challenge I think that we all face as caregivers is trying to do the best that we can in juggling this situation for in the best interest of your loved one. That is a different definition for everybody, but I'm sure that we all aim at making sure that they're cared for, loved, and that uh, we give them the best quality of life that we can and experience it. And that is something we're caregivers. My thing and my problem with the, the giver part is that we're giving so much that we don't see how much it engages us and how we need to detach ourselves to make sure that we also give to ourselves. And I think that's the challenge in this, in this situation. You don't want to give so much that you jeopardize your health. And I think that's the other balancing act. It's not just about taking care of your loved one, but also the balancing of your own life, your own interests, and pursuing those things that make you happy. I don't think I've had joy. I, I don't even know what that means anymore. I'm actually trying to figure it out and look for it even more so in the things that I do to get that feeling back. Mm, That's a really good point. Oh, I support you in finding joy and however you can (laughs) and finding someone to take care of George and you finding joy. Absolutely. Well, if I can find joy in a Lego, it doesn't take too much. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. I think think I'm up on a good track here. The the threshold is very low. Yeah. That's so, true. <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, I don't need anything fancy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Good point. <laughs> now, one thing that I do want to add is that the hardest part for me has been asking for help. And I've already overcome that. I'm working through certain things. But when you're saddled with certain responsibilities, you're like, okay, I'm a professional. I mean, I have degrees and I can do this and I can do that. But the reality is that it brings you down to earth and you realize your limitations and that you don't know everything or that you don't need help or you're embarrassed or whatever. I have put that aside now. I mean, it's taken me probably a while, but I have put that aside and I said, you know what? I've got to realize what my own limitations are, what is making me stressed 
what I don't know and what action do I need to take in order to mitigate that. That I think is really an important thing to learn and to do for oneself because it does create stress or undue stress that eventually if you do address it, it gives you a little bit of a window of just feeling a relief, quite frankly. So something simple like reading financial statements or whatever, I mean, seeking help is something that may help to give some clarity and make better decisions. So I think that that's one thing that I've I've learned and it's been a kick in the pants, but it's asking and just being resourceful and Mm -hmm. asking for the kind of help that's going to help give you some enlightenment of things that you may not know about. So I, and I think along the way from people that are very willing and those who they just don't truly understand, but that's fine. Such a good point though. I think you're right. And our group is a really good example of, but there's a, look, we have a, savvy, educated, highly educated folks in the group, right? And everyone comes in at a loss. Here you're very successful in your profession and no one really knows how to do this job. I mean, it doesn't matter how successful you are at work. When it comes to caring for someone with dementia, it just doesn't translate none of it. Right. No, None of your no. degree, your education, your no. degrees. No. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter because it goes out the window because of the kind of behaviors and things that you have to deal with. And so you're right. And so it, it, it makes you humble. I think it should make you <laughs> humble and it makes you aware of your limitations. And so I think what I've done, I've sort of realized, OK, I am not perfect. I you know, have my limitations. What are they and what do I need to do to make sure that I can move ahead and not feel like I have weights on my body bringing me down? Like at the beginning of all that process, and we saw this with you, I think, is the depression at the beginning. Yeah, yeah because you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be this, this, and, and you just feel like, wow, it's just, you really do have to do some introspective thinking to be able to come to some realization. And I think everybody does at some point. I think I still find myself in denial sometimes and, and I, I have to you know, take someone like a medic point out and say, wait a minute, that's not the way you should look at it or that is doing that or whatever. So yeah, but you're right. I mean, we don't get a degree in this. We don't have a degree. And even, I, I even think that even people who actually are engaged in this know this. And that's why they have the kind of flexibility to work with us as caregivers and and with our loved ones, because they know that if they don't have that flexibility, there's no standard that's going to apply to everybody. So it's going to make their work much more challenging, which it takes a very special person to be able to work in the the field related to this kind of disease and caregiving. Well, it takes a special person to be home 24-7 with their spouse to be a caregiver. And as you say, it was caregiver, like the giver part. You're right. There's no caretaker. Like there's right. no taking. That's, I think that's a really great point. Like who <laughs> yeah. takes care of us, you know? Exactly. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, who takes care of the caregiver? Yeah, that's really yeah. true. It's yeah. not care, give and take. It's care, give. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The scale yeah. is definitely unbalanced. You see the, the gravity. I mean, I think the evolution of the situation is such that there's, when you asked me about behavior, there was a behavioral issue that was also another one that kind of prompted more discussion about medications when we were driving to UCLA to 
having me with a doctor. And even though I lock all the doors, he kept opening the door because he wanted to get fresh air. His so he'd forget was, to open the window, you mean? He would go so to open the door? Would, yeah. It, but, you know, electronically, you can close all the doors, right? Because there's a shell safety feature. Because of his agility with mechanical stuff, he would open it up with his hand. The severity of that, I guess I had talked to someone and we were talking about it. And I said, well, we were in a safe street. Well, you know, we weren't, I wasn't going past any. He said, no, 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 you have to, it took someone else to point out it's the safety of yourself and others too. And even though we were on surface streets and in a residential area and I pulled over and it, because it happened twice, three times, we had to stop it. And it was the most exhausting day just going to a doctor's appointment and coming back. And that is what makes it even a challenge because this is just driving from Culver City if you want to UCLA Medical Center and then coming back because you have an appointment. And this is happening on the way and you're like, oh my God. So we get to the doctor and uh, he is the most charming. George is the most charming person in, <laughs> in the doctor's office. And my daughter had come to them. We're both like, oh, you know, we're both like, oh my God. And we go back to the car and he goes back to being the grumpy self that he was and very upset. And this time he forgot that he had done what he had done. So he, we didn't have the episode, but we both got home and we were just exhausted, exhausted because the emotional toll. So we became aware that, okay, we need to figure this one out a little differently and and maybe the other day won't be a problem. So we took him out and he was fine. But it, it was kind of like, oh, my God. So that unpredictability and the flexibility and the concern and it's just. Yeah, you're hypervigilant because you're just worried about what he might do. Yeah. yeah. And you can't think of everything. <laughs> you can't. And then it's just, just like a little kid. They always find that little thing that you're like, you missed. But we've been lucky. I mean, he's just doing the best that we can. And it, it hasn't grown into a major, major issue. But again, with the help of you know consultants and doctors, whatever, and medication, it's helped to get us to a point where trying our best to manage the situation at this stage, because it will obviously increase medication and stuff is likely to happen. And we'll be prepared for that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. You feel like you have some tools to be prepared for things down the road a bit. Yeah. And yeah. like I said, the resources, you have people that you can call upon that can give you some guidance and uh, help you with the best decisions. So yeah, I just remember that example as another level of frustration and behavioral issue. And it's not only them, but it's also the level of frustration that we have in relation to the situation. So he has, which is a really good thing, he's lost total interest in driving, but he needs to see the car in the driveway. Okay. It's that visual. So the car is not working. The car has no license because I've decided to take it off the internet, all of that. But if he doesn't see the car there, it's like, what happened to my car? They stole it. Da, 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 da. So I have to have the car there. Even and, though it's, uh, it's disabled. So yeah. what did you do to disable the car? How did you do that? I take out the battery. The battery oh. wires. And, you uh -huh. know, it doesn't, when you turn it, it just doesn't. And he doesn't even ask for the key or anything. But the car, those are the kind of things. It's like the symbolic. There's certain, like he has to have his computer on the desk. And it's an old computer, Adele. And he has to, so those things that they gravitate to that are very strong symbols, I suppose, of their past or of the functionality that they had before, even though he hasn't touched the computer for all this time and he hasn't touched the car at all, those are really 
fascinating, I guess that's the only way to say, not frustrating, but just fascinating to observe that they hang on to those things that no longer are workable, that they don't no longer work on. But it's very important. It's like holding on to their past in some way. That's the way I look at it. Because who would, I mean, the car has been sitting there. He doesn't even drive it. I'm going to sell it, but I can't. Because if I sell it, I'm afraid of what that will mean, the reaction. And just like the computer sitting there and it's not even connected, but it's there and he comes in and checks in the office to make sure that the computer's still there and that the light is still blinking. So those two examples are just things that out of others that the focus is just incredible and the connection to what they might have done in the past with those things are, they surface in, in, a, in a way that, again, it's just, it's just fascinating. Well, I guess it makes, like he looks at his car and it's a symbol of independence, right? Yeah. And so he yeah. thinks, okay, I could take out the car, but I'm not, it's like a choice. Maybe he thinks like, I'm just not going to go out today. And I don't know what he's thinking in his mind, but oh, good, the yeah, car is no, there. No, no. Like, I could go out, but no, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It's it's still so. I was trying to look for the right word, but it's the. I think I guess for me that it's important to maintain those touchstones of things that are still relevant. Maybe not functional, but for some reason it keeps George grounded. It keeps him secure that the environment is still what he expects it to be, mm-hmm. which makes it really difficult to think about, okay, well, if he were to move someplace else, what would happen? Like these are elements within the house. And it's just those two examples, but there's elements within the house that he really clings on to that are important to him, that he focuses on and that anchors him. And so even though we may not like the computer sitting there collecting dust or the car work, I just feel at this point it would be more disruptive and I would have more of a challenge dealing with his anger and his disappointment and whatever emotions that he may have that I cannot predict. So it's best to leave the way things are for right now. And eventually I think that he will lose that interest or that affinity with that. But for the moment, it's making sure that things aren't so disruptive that are going to disrupt him even Mm -hmm. more so mentally and emotionally. Yeah, no, that's a good point. These are relevant touchstones, as you so eloquently say. That's exactly what they are. And so it doesn't matter if they still sit there. It's okay. You'll sell the car when he doesn't remember he, yeah. he had a car, sadly. I mean, that'll be a sad day. But The obsessive behavior, making sure he goes every time to the window to make sure the car's still there, making sure he locks the doors every day, making sure that just things that you you live with and you're like, oh my God, he just checked that already. That's the third time. And you have to learn how to pick your battles, so to speak. I mean, he's not harming anybody, just checking on the doors and making sure that we're safe. But, you know, how many you times, have to be realistic. How many times, times has he done? Three times a three night, times. He, he goes around the house and checks he all the doors. He forgets that he went already and then he'll sit down and he'll go again. He'll forget and then he'll go for the last time because he thinks it's the first time that he went to the Mm. through his sequence and so it's a different pattern every time front door kitchen door back door it's what it is but you understand the obsessive behavior and you're like you learn how to sit back a little and just let it be you know because i and i think that's that's a difficult part for a lot of caregivers because we're like ah how many times am i going to listen to this or how many times are we going to do this and it's just a level of acceptance that sort of goes with the with the role mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
a big mm. level of acceptance for all uh, the, uh, all the changes that happen. Yes. I think we all as caregivers do have, I mean, that's why I'm enjoying the conversations. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from others as to how they approach things too, because I think we all have different ways on how we're going to approach our caregiving, but, but we're in this together and that challenge no doubt so I'm, I'm i'm curious about what everybody else is saying and sharing because i think it's important to be able to have a breadth of knowledge or information and and approaches and hit on something which by the way i wanted to share something because i was a part of listening in on a conversation that my husband was having with a group of folks who are in a similar spectrum i guess of capacity and they were talking about how unaccompanied minor can apply to someone who has alzheimer's and so they were talking about traveling. And so if you want that kind of attention, if, if someone's traveling because you can't be with them or travel to get them or whatever, they shared that the unaccompanied minor, something that could apply to someone who has Alzheimer's and their flight attendant would take care mm-hmm. of their loved one and make sure that they were delivered to your loved one at the other end. I mean, I didn't know that. I just, I'm just throwing it out there. You probably have to research it some more, but Mm -hmm. I throw it out there because those are the kind of things that come up in these little caveats of just little nuggets of knowledge that you're like, oh, not that I would ever think of sending George by himself, but but if there was an emergency or a need or something, it's good to know that this feature doesn't just apply to children, but it applies to someone who may have a disability and who's traveling on their own to another location. Yeah, no, I I think that you can apply that unaccompanied minor to a person, a senior. Oh, you don't know unless you're in the situation. situation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I guess that's that's what I guess what I'm sharing is that those nuggets of knowledge and information do come out of discussions from other peers and others who have gone through similar experiences in other ways. And so that's kind of helpful. And so those are the kind of things you include in your toolkit, you know, Mm -hmm. so that you can have available and apply whenever you need it or somebody else needs to know that information. Good tidbit to throw out there. <laughs> Anything else? And, Is there any last thought yeah, that you have that you think I would be helpful think, for others to hear? I think the thing is never to feel a lot of regret because I think that that is, is painful regrets for not being more attentive or regrets for just not doing enough, maybe uh, traveling, not doing enough, which is just and to live for the present moment and just sort of go with it, which is easier said than done. And to make sure that you reach out to people that uh, care about you too, so that they can hear and be listening ear and uh, shoulder to cry on. Because I think there's a lot of crying that goes through this process. I was not a crier at all. And now it's like I'm a whole different stage. And it's okay to show those emotions so that you can at least let go of some of the, the stress, anger, disappointment feelings and that they're real feelings and I think that we just need to acknowledge them and learn from them so that we can learn from others. I'm sure I will think of the zillion things that I probably should have mentioned but I think that we're all a work in progress. I don't think this will be the last time that I'll talk to you Barbara because I think we're all in a different evolutionary state. I can predict what my next conversation would be with you because I can tell you that this journey that my husband's going through is a point of no return, so to speak, and it's, it's just going to evolve. And so we'll be at a different stage and be talking about something totally different at that point. And I think that that's something I expect. And unfortunately, that's what this disease does. It is a progression and you can't deny it. So 
and as we learn, I think that it's an opportunity to share with others to make sure that we're all in tune with what the expectations are and our own personal experiences that might uh, enlighten others to take on this, this area. And the last thing, Barbara, just I've sat through presentations on Saturday regarding the rising concern about dementia in the Latino community. And as obviously I'm Latina and I have a lot of affinity with the community. And I have to be honest, I really was not aware of this until now that I'm in this journey with my husband, that this was so prevalent. And since I reach out and I have friends and whatever, it's, it is a very taboo issue and one that's not easily accepted or recognized. And I understand why there's those cultural elements and the hush-hush and the no, we don't want to let people know. And I think that there's a lot of work, I think, that the organizations are doing to try to get at being more aware and being aware, just like we have issues, challenging issues about how COVID and vaccine goes into disenfranchised communities. I think in the area of Alzheimer's, we have that same challenge, making sure that people can recognize the signs, people can understand the resources, people can engage in a way that they feel comfortable. And I think we still have a lot of work to do, not only in the Latino community, but also in other in other diverse communities where Alzheimer's may be in, maybe present, but people don't really either want to admit or are aware that this disease exists to the extent that it does. And so that would be my, my other piece of this because it touches me in many ways. I, I, wow, I applaud you for coming here today. And I really, I look forward to our future discussions, which I'm sure we'll have and will be great as George progresses. I mean, it'll be great for listeners to hear. But I really applaud you for coming here today. As you said, it's a taboo subject in the Latina community. And so you being willing to share your experience here today is remarkable. So I appreciate you and appreciate you for doing this. Thank you for joining us today on another episode of Dementia Discussions. If you're a caregiver or know someone who's a caregiver that would like to be a guest on the show, please call me at 310-362-8232 or go to DementiaDiscussions.net forward slash contact and let me know. It takes courage because not everyone's willing to do that. I would love to have you. Remember that you can follow Dementia Discussions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot if you would leave a review. For any other information about this podcast, please visit me at DementiaDiscussions.net. And please share this podcast with someone you know if you think it may help. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you here again next time on Dementia Discussions. Dementia Discussions.